0: We're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. Each week, you'll hear compelling conversations from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. On this episode, we hear from Kwame Anthony Appiah. A philosopher, cultural theorist, and author, Appiah teaches philosophy and law at New York University, and he is the author of several books. His two most recent works are The Honor Code, How Moral Revolutions Happen, and Lines of Dissent, W.E.B. Du Bois, and the Emergence of Identity. In this lecture, Appiah rejects the idea that cross-cultural conversations often lead to the discovery of irreconcilable differences. The argument holds that conversations across groups about ethical questions break down because each culture has different and incompatible ethical starting points. Appiah maintains such an argument is mistaken. Because, he says, many people have found cross-cultural encounters to be among the most rewarding experiences in their lives. And without them, we have little chance of solving the global problems that we face. Here's Kwame Anthony Appiah.
1: Thank you all for coming. Um, I just have to make sure that I understand how this machine works, since it has all my words. Um, When I was a teenager, my English grandmother moved from... um, her house into a smaller cottage nearby, and like many older people, she was downsizing. And she sold her house to a British member of parliament, a very right-wing politician, who favored policies, pretty much every one of which I vehemently opposed. But in the course of many conversations, since he was now our neighbor, he became uh, not just a neighbor, but a friend, and I often dropped in on him and his wife uh, across the road, and when it came time for me to choose a college, he drove me halfway across England to Cambridge to introduce me to Clare College, where he'd been a student in the 1930s, and that was where I eventually did my first, first my undergraduate and then my doctoral degrees in philosophy, uh, four days, four decades after he had left. On the long drive back from Cambridge, we had a vigorous discussion about capital punishment, because there was going to be a vote in the British Parliament to reintroduce it, and I did my best to persuade him that this was a bad idea. And I can still recall the moment as we got back to my grandmother's village when he said to me, well, you won all the arguments, Anthony, but I'm still going to vote for the reintroduction of capital punishment. Now, here's the thing. I was a young lefty, he was an old Tory, but we liked each other. He took me trout fishing, he tried to teach me to box, and we talked a good deal. And the fact that we disagreed about all these political things uh, never seemed like a reason to stop talking. My family are mostly socialists. He was the first conservative I knew well. It was a great lesson to me. You don't have to agree to be agreeable. So today I'm going to defend the claim that if we are to share a world peacefully, across the boundaries of states and social identities, many of us will need to engage in continuing conversation across identities. Political identities, to be sure, like the one that divided me from Sir Knox Cunningham, but also religious and racial and national and uh, identities uh, and the like. Now this may seem obvious, but if you think for a moment about what conversation with family and friends is like, you'll see that it is in fact far from obvious. Of course, we have to communicate across boundaries, but what I mean by conversation is a very particular kind of, conversation, uh, of communication, and it's not obvious that we need to engage in that. After all, ordinary conversation is not, like much political communication, instrumental. We do it for its own sake. Whereas our interactions with people of other cultures and identities often have these practical goals. We're trying to get to a trade agreement, we're trying to get a ceasefire, we're trying to make a deal. Now, I didn't talk to Sir in order to persuade him of this or that. I tried to persuade him of this or that because we were already in conversation. Second, our ordinary conversations, again, think of friends and family, aren't aimed at converting the people we're talking to even though they can be passionately argumentative. The right model for talk aimed at conversion is the sermon. And preaching at people of other identities, far from being helpful to peaceful coexistence, is quite likely to be an obstacle. Despite what people say, preaching actually works best for the choir. Third, conversation is not about a search Ordinary conversation, our conversations with our friends and neighbors are not about a search for agreement. And so the metaphor of conversation across identities is not meant to suggest the pursuit of consensus. When you have a nice conversation with somebody about uh, soccer or, or uh, football, American football, um, you're, not trying to, you're not expecting to reach consensus with somebody who's a fan of another team. It's fun anyway. And finally, when I said that conversation wasn't instrumental, I, didn't, I meant that it has uh, no aim at all beyond itself, not even the aim of developing a relationship. Of course, good conversation may achieve good relationship. So Knox became like an uncle to me, but our conversation brought us together precisely because sustaining the relationship wasn't why we did it. Conversation is a way of being together with others that has no further ostensible aims than the rewards of being and talking together. We enjoy it because normal human beings are deeply sociable. Conversation at its best is precisely pointless in the sense that it has no aim beyond itself. While you're in it, it's best if the point of the conversation is engagement in the conversation itself. Now people who are in regular conversation with each other may or may not know much about each other's lives. The people with whom you discuss the Super Bowl in a bar may not know that you're having a hard time with your family or your career. So conversation doesn't require intimacy. But if you and uh, someone else are in regular conversation, then as I say, you're used to being together. So the real virtue of conversation across cultures is that it allows people to get used to spending time together in a way that's rewarding despite misunderstandings and disagreements, not because it avoids them. Conversation partners, as I say, are used to one another in all their mutual strangeness. They can disagree without being disagreeable. Now, I want to discuss some of the ways in which cross-cultural conversation about moral matters, both across and within societies, Uh, will produce disagreements, and at the same time I want to argue that these disagreements do not always or even usually amount to reasons for giving up the enterprise of engagement across boundaries. One familiar kind of cultural relativism amounts to insisting that cross-cultural discourse is pointless just because it is bound to end in disagreement. And I'm going to try and persuade you that both the premise of this argument, that disagreement is inevitable, And the conclusion that the conversation is therefore not worthwhile, that both of these are mistaken. But I want to start with something we should agree with the relative is about. People um, disagree with one another within and across cultures about important things all the time. And there are indeed correlations between the disagreements that people have and the cultures that they come from. That's I think a banal truth. And there are other boring truths, not just about what we do disagree about, but what, we, what it's reasonable to disagree about. The thesis that people are entitled to different views since they've had different experiences is dull. If my parents and teachers taught me that the Earth is 5,000 years old, and you learned that it was billions of years old, and that was all the evidence we had, we would reasonably hold different views. For each of us to think otherwise than we do, would actually be unreasonable, though, of course, one of us must be wrong. So, in the case of moral relativism, what's an interesting, what's a non-dull, non-boring claim to make about the reasonableness of moral disagreements? Well, consider two people, Um, Elliot gave my full name, my name is Kwame Anthony Appiah. So I'm gonna consider two people, one I'm going to call Kwame, who's a Ghanaian, and the other I'm going to call Anthony, he's English who disagree about the question uh, whether um, gay sex is wrong. Now, this is exactly the sort of the case where people who call themselves relativists often suggest that Kwame's options and Anthony's are different and depend on the different moral frameworks of their different cultures. As a descriptive matter, it may be true that each holds the view he does in some sense because it is the standard view where he comes from. And that, as I say, is a boring fact. What does relativism have to offer? Well, one possibility is just the claim, which some relativists have made, that each of them is right according to the standards of his culture. So when, uh, Ant- when Kwame says, homosexuality is wrong, and Anthony says, no, it isn't, each of them might be saying something true. Now, that looks like a straightforward contradiction. It can't be that someone who says homosexuality is wrong and someone who says it isn't are both saying something true. So I think we have to interpret this in a different way as meaning something like this. What I think the relativist means is um, each is saying something that is true for him. Now, the trouble with this as 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 a proposal is that the judgment that we are considering here, the judgment that homosexuality is wrong, is a moral judgment. And to think of something as morally wrong is to think, among other things, that it would be better if everyone avoided it because it's wrong. That's the practical meaning of the idea that moral judgments are, in the philosopher Immanuel Kant's term, universalizable. Morality isn't just a set of rules we made for ourselves. It would be difficult, in other words, to make moral sense of the idea that it's true for you that homosexual acts are okay, but that you should nevertheless not engage in them. So even if moral relativism can be made sense of theoretically, and there are philosophers who worked at that, it faces a difficulty in practice. This kind of relativism gives me no reason to live and let live, no reason to accept that you might live live by one standard, and I might reasonably live by another. Kwame can say, look, it may be right by Antony's standards, but it's wrong by mine, so I'm going to condemn him anyway. Now, many relativists will think that there's nothing that these people can do to persuade each other uh, about who's right. The truth in relativism, they think, is that there are no rationally compelling reasons for people to change their minds about moral questions. Once Kwame and Antony have moral views, There's nothing to which either can appeal to give the other a reason uh, that he must accept to believe uh, what he himself believes. Now, I'm actually not gonna take a stand on that question, but such arguments proceed from premises about how things are as a matter of psychological fact to conclusions about how things ought to be And I share the skepticism of the great uh, Enlightenment Scottish philosopher David Hume that we should be careful when people move from uh, a metaphysical is to a moral ought. So I want to start instead not from a factual premise, not from a metaphysical premise, but from a moral premise. And the moral premise is that it's better to treat each other's moral beliefs as responsive to reasons because to treat a person's moral views as bare facts about her, ungrounded in reasons, is to treat her with disrespect. And morality is against treating people with disrespect. So once you see that, the relativist claim that we can only evaluate moral beliefs from within shared frameworks will lead you to wonder how you can treat people from other cultures with respect. If you can't treat other people's moral beliefs as responsive to reasons, how can you treat them with respect? And relativism of that sort will lead not just to, won't lead to tolerance, it'll lead, in fact, to contempt. So again, I'm going to try and persuade you that even if the relativists were right that moral disagreements across cultures are at least sometimes rationally irresolvable, that doesn't in practice undermine the point of discussing such questions and many others with people from other cultures. And I want to begin by observing how incredibly multifarious are vocabularies of evaluation actually are. People often talk about morality as if it's all just about good and bad and right and wrong. There's a huge range of moral uh, concepts that we use uh, to organize our lives. So there are what philosophers sometimes call thin concepts like good and bad, which just express approval or disapproval, but uh, whose application is otherwise rather unconstrained. You can say good soil, good argument, good man, good dog, now, but much of our actual language of evalu- evaluation, the language we actually use to talk about our moral lives, is much, much thicker than good and bad and right and wrong. For example, people everywhere have ideas about responsibilities for children. Uh, you are responsible for your children, but who are your children? Well, I grew up in two societies that conceived of family in two different ways. These societies, the Akan Society of Ghana and, and British. Uh, and the British world of my mother's family, have been in touch with each other for many centuries, so the differences are diminishing, but important differences remain. So I want to consider the Akan idea of the Abusia, a group of people related by common ancestry who have relations of love and obligation to one another. Well, that sounds, of course, like a family. But an Abusia and a family have some important differences. Membership in an abusian uh, depends only, for example, on who your mother is. Your father is completely irrelevant, as your mother is irrelevant in some patrilineal, patriarchal societies. If you're a woman, your children are in your abusien, and so are the descendants of your daughters and their daughters on to the end of time. So membership in the abusien for the scientists among you is like, uh, uh, transmitted like mitochondrial DNA. It passes only through women. So I'm in the same Abussien as my sister's children, but not in the same one as my brother's children. And since I'm not related to my father through a woman, he's not a member of my Abussien either. So if Abussien means family, this is a world in which even you and your father are not in the same family. Now this conception of the family will be familiar to anthropologists as a matrilineal conception. And 100 years ago in Asante, where I grew up in most lives, Your mother's brother, your senior maternal uncle, who you would call your Wafa, would have played the role a father would have then been expected to play in England. He was a member of your Abussiens. He's related to you through women. You have his mother is your maternal grandmother. He was responsible with the child's mother for making sure that his sister's children were fed and clothed and educated. Many married women actually lived with their brothers, visiting their husbands regularly, And men took an interest in their children, of course, but their obligations to their children were relatively less demanding, more like the obligations of an English uncle. Now, these are two different ways of organizing family life, as you can recognize, and which one makes sense to you will depend in large measure on the concepts and experiences with which you grew up. As long as a society has a way of organizing responsibilities for children that works... Sorry, the child is now leaving. uh, (laughs) It would be odd to say that one way was the right way of doing it and all the other ways were wrong. Most Americans feel rightly that a father delinquent in child support payments is doing something that isn't just illegal in many places, but morally wrong. And many Cannes would feel the same thing about a delinquent waffer, a delinquent maternal uncle. Once you understand the two systems, you'll be likely to agree with both judgments, And it won't be because you've given up any of your basic moral commitments. Good child-rearing reflects these basic, thin, universal values, but their expression is highly particular, thickly enmeshed with local customs and expectations and the facts of social arrangements. Disagreements like these about who has the primary responsibility for the welfare of children are consistent with thinking that each society can recognize the reasons the other has for doing what it does, even though they're doing different things. But other local values scarcely respond to anything that most of you will recognize. My father, for example, wouldn't eat meat, at least the meat of certain animals killed in the forest. He told us once he ate venison by accident in England, and his skin broke out in a rash. But if you'd asked him why he wouldn't eat bushmeat, he wouldn't have mentioned allergies. He would have told you, he probably wouldn't have told you because he wouldn't have thought it was any of your business, but if he had been inclined to tell you anything, he would have said that it was achiwadir for him because he was of the clan of the bush cow. So, etymologically, achiwadir means something that you turn your back on. And if you had to guess for a, 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 a translation for this, you would presumably suggest the word taboo, a word that actually came into English from a Polynesian language where it was used to refer to things that people of certain groups strenuously avoided in the way that my father and his clansmen uh, avoid bushmeat. And in Ghanaian English, when we translate achiwadia, we say taboo, and we have a verb, I taboo that. Now, of course, people who aren't a can can come to understand what the word achiwadia means. I imagine you mostly understand it pretty well from the little I've said already. And if you read some a anthropology, you would understand it better. Even then, though, this idea isn't going to play any role in your day-to-day thinking. You understand it, but you're not gonna take it up. You no doubt think that there are some acts that might reasonably be described as taboo, for example, incest, but you probably don't think that incest is to be avoided because it is taboo. You probably think that it's taboo because it should be avoided. So that the concept of taboo isn't doing any work in explaining why you're against incest. It's just a way of recording the fact that you're against it. Whereas for my father, the fact that something was a idea was a reason not to do it. It wasn't that he had a reason not to eat this meat and he said, so I taboo it. He tabooed it because it's being taboo was a reason for him. Now, I don't want to say that taboos are moral. They're certainly values and they, they, because they, gui- they guide our acts and our thoughts and our feelings, but they're unlike what you would probably think of as moral values in at least three ways. First, they don't apply to everybody. Only members of the Bushclower clan have the obligation to avoid bushmeat. Second, People who, what happens when you break a taboo is that you're polluted, even if you do it accidentally. Whereas when you commit a moral offense, the fact that you didn't mean to do it is a substantial defense. Intention matters in morality, but with taboos it doesn't matter at all. If you've done the taboo thing, you're polluted uh, whether you meant to do it or not. So Oedipus, who broke the incest taboo, was no better off for having broken it because he didn't know that, the, uh, that she was his mother. Though from a moral point of view uh, it's uh, more excusable. A final difference between taboos and moral demands is that breaches of them mostly pollute you. They're not fundamentally about how you should treat other people. They dictate how you should uh, live if you want to keep yourself free of ritual pollution. Now taboos are thickly enmeshed in all sorts of customs and factual beliefs. And one response to alien values like these is just to dismiss them as primitive and irrational, but if that's what they are, then the primitive and the irrational are pervasive outside my homeland too. Indeed, this kind of taboo-like response is quite universal, which is one reason why you have no difficulty in understanding it. Many Americans eat pigs, or at least bits of pigs, but won't eat cats, or bits of cats. It's hard to make the case that cats are dirtier or more intelligent than pigs, so there doesn't seem to be any good reason for this. Most American meat eaters who refuse to eat cats would have only the defense that the very thought of it fills them with disgust. Now, many people in the United States, secular and religious, think that the attitudes of some of their contemporaries towards some sexual acts, masturbation and homosexuality and consensual adult incest, for example, are versions of the taboos found in other cultures. In the so-called Holiness Code at the end of the Book of Leviticus, in the Torah, the Old Testament, eating animals that have died of natural causes is taboo, and so it requires you to wash yourself and your clothes. And in the same chapters, you'll find proscriptions on the consuming of blood, bodily self-mutilation, except of course male circumcision, and seeing your relatives naked. For many modern Christians, these regulations are the parts of Jewish law from which Christ freed them. But the famous proscription against lying with a man as with a woman is found alongside these passages, along with commands to avoid incest and bestiality and child sacrifice, which most Christians still agree with. A Can people largely accept now that others don't feel the power of our taboos. We know that they may have their own, but most importantly, These local values, these very special and particular values, don't stop us from recognizing as we do that kindness and generosity and compassion are good or that cruelty, stinginess and inconsiderateness are bad and that these are virtues and vices recognized in most societies. Several years ago, an international parliament of religious leaders issued a universal declaration of a global ethic. And their exhortations had for me the qualities of those horoscopes that seem wonderfully precise while being vague enough to admit all comers. We must not commit any kind of sexual immorality, they said, that's the universal ethic. The trouble is, we don't agree about what counts as sexual immorality, so that agreement ends up being not much use to us. We must put uh, behind us, they said, all forms of domination and abuse. But societies that by my lights and probably yours subject women to domination and abuse are unlikely to recognize themselves under that description. They're going to agree that you shouldn't uh, subject people to domination and abuse. They'll just deny that that's what they're doing. So it goes with many of our central values. Is spanking children to teach them how to behave, is it cruel? Well, we could each no doubt argue our way to one position or the other on the issue, but if we ended up disagreeing, it wouldn't be because one of us didn't understand the values at stake. It would be because applying these value terms to new cases requires judgment and discretion. Often, part of our understanding of these terms is that their application is meant to be debated. They are, to use a piece of philosopher's jargon, essentially contestable and for many concepts, as WB Galley wrote in introducing the concept of the essentially contestable, proper use inevitably involves endless disputes about their proper use on the part of users. Evaluative language aims to shape not only our acts, but also our thoughts and our feelings, and when we describe acts with words like courageous, cowardly, cruel, kind, we're shaping what people think and feel about what was done. shaping our understanding of moral language as these new examples come along. Because the language is essentially contestable, even people who share a moral vocabulary have plenty of things to disagree about. So, we can disagree about values because the language of value is thickly enmeshed in particular ways of life, as with the Akan and British ideas of family. We can disagree because there are values like taboos that are local, and we can disagree because the language of value is essentially contestable. And there's yet a fourth source of disagreement about values. Even if we share a value language, and even if we agree how to apply it in some particular cases, we can disagree about the relative weight to give to different values. Confucius in the Analects says that a son should respect his parents. A Confucian gentleman, a Junzi, should be generous to those who have done well by him, should avoid vindictiveness towards those who have done him injury. He should avoid avarice and not let self-interest get in the way of doing what is right. He should be courageous, wise, and keep his word. Summarized in this no doubt simplistic way, Confucius can sound banal. But because we share these values with him, it doesn't mean that we'll always agree with him about what we ought to think and feel. He placed a lot more weight on obedience to authority, for example, than probably most of you would. As a result, sometimes Confucius might respond to the demands of the many values we both recognize and share in ways different from the way that I would or you would. Such conflicts among shared values can take place within a single society, indeed, of course, within a single human heart. Hegel famously said that tragedy involves the clash not between good and evil, but between two goods. Agamemnon, the commander of the Greek army, had to choose between the interests of the Trojan expedition and his devotion to his wife and daughter. Such dilemmas are a mainstay of imaginative fiction, think Sophie's Choice, but uh, clashes among our values, if usually less exalted, are an everyday occurrence. Consider criminal punishment. No reasonable person thinks that punishing innocent people is good. But we all know that human institutions are imperfect, that our knowledge is always fallible, and that juries are not free from prejudice. So we know that sometimes innocent people will be punished by the criminal justice system, not intentionally, but as a result of error. That would seem like an argument for abandoning criminal punishment. After all, I said you shouldn't punish innocent people. But we also think that punishing the guilty is desirable, especially because we hope it will deter future crime and we may be unable to agree on how to strike the balance between avoiding the injustice of punishing the innocent and other values, even though we agree on what the other values are that are at stake, security of people and property, justice, uh, retribution. Uh, The legal scholar Charles Black argued that mistakes and caprice are inevitable in capital trials and that killing an innocent person is too important a mistake to risk. Many proponents of capital punishment believe punishing those who deserve to die is important, important enough that we must regretfully accept that we will sometimes kill an innocent person. Not to do the right thing in the cases where we punish the guilty would be a greater wrong. So we can find people on either side of the capital punishment debate who share the same values but weigh them differently. So we've identified many kinds of disagreement about values you can fail to share a language of evaluation, you can give the same vocabulary different interpretations, and you can give the same values different weights. These problems seem much more likely to arise if the discussion involves people from different societies. Mostly, we share evaluative language with our neighbors, you might think. While evaluation is essentially contestable, the range of disagreement will usually be wider, won't it? When people from a different place are trying to come to a shared evaluation. You and I, for example, may not always agree about what is polite, but politeness is what we're disagreeing about. Other societies may have words that behave roughly like our word polite, and they'll have something like the idea of good manners, for example. Uh, But in in the Arab world, that will involve burping after meals loudly in order to indicate your satisfaction. But an extra level of difference will arise when this, because this, this thick vocabulary of evaluation is embodied in different ways of life. Finally, we know that one way in which societies differ is in the relative weights they put on different values. So you might conclude that cross-cultural conversations about values are bound to end in disagreement. Indeed, you might fear that they would inflame conflict and uh, undermine the little understanding we already have. Now, I think this is wrong, obviously. I said that at the start for a couple of reasons and I want to explain in closing what they are. First, we can agree about what to do even though we don't agree about why. That's a very important kind of practical agreement. And second, we exaggerate the role of reason and argument in uh, reaching or failing to reach uh, agreement about values anyway. So the first point about uh, we can agree on what to do even though we don't agree about why. So the Akan, my father's people, uh, as you will no doubt be glad to hear, shun incest between brothers and sisters and parents and children, because it is it's taboo. You can disagree with the Akan that incest is wrong, even if you don't accept their explanation of why it's wrong. Similarly, if my interest is in discouraging theft, I don't need to worry that one person uh, avoids stealing because she believes in the golden rule, another because she has a conception of personal integrity which rules it out, and a third because she thinks God is against theft. Value language does help shape common responses of thought and action and feeling, but when the issue is what to do, differences in thought and feeling can cease to matter. We know from our own family lives that conversation doesn't have to start with agreement about principles. Only someone in the grip of a terrible theory would want to insist on an agreement on principles before discussing which movie to go to, or what to have for dinner, or when to go to bed. Our political coexistence depends on being able to agree about practices while having different views about their justification. For many years in medieval Spain under the Amours and later in the Ottoman Near East, Jews and Christians uh, lived under Muslim rule. This modus vivendi was possible only because the communities did not have to agree on a set of universal values. In 17th century Holland, starting roughly during the time of Rembrandt, the Sephardic Jewish community began to be increasingly integrated into Dutch society, and a great deal of intellectual and social exchange transpired between Christian and Jewish communities. But Christian toleration of Jews didn't depend on express agreement on fundamental values. Again, it, it depended upon not discussing those things. These historical examples of religious toleration should remind us about the most obvious fact about our own society, or one of them, which is that we agree about many institutions and practices without agreeing on the reasons we accept them. Most of us share a willingness to be governed under the Constitution, whether or not we like the court. But that doesn't require anyone to agree on any very particular claims about values. The Bill of Rights tells you that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. But we don't need to agree on what values underlie our acceptance of the First Amendment's treatment of religion. Is it religious toleration as an end in itself? Is it a Protestant commitment to the sovereignty of the individual conscience? Is it prudence, which recognizes that trying to force religious conformity on people only leads to civil discord? Is it skepticism that any religion has it right? Is it to protect the government from religion or religion from the government or some combination of these or some other aims? Well, we don't have to agree about that to agree that the First Amendment's treatment of religion is a good idea. The legal theorist Cass Sunstein has written eloquently that the American understanding of constitutional law is what he calls a set of incompletely theorized agreements. Most people will agree that for the Congress to pass laws banning mosques would be wrong, for example, without agreeing on exactly why. Many of us, myself for example, would mention the First Amendment even though, as I just said, I doubt we agree about what values it embodies. But others would ground their judgment, not in any particular law, but in the conception of democracy and the equal citizenship of our fellow Muslims, neither of which is explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, of course. There isn't an agreed-upon answer, and the point is there doesn't need to be an agreed-upon answer. We can live together without agreeing on what the values are that make it good to live together. We can agree about what to do in most cases without agreeing about why we should do it. Now, I don't want to overstate the point. No doubt there are widely shared values that help Americans live together in more or less in amity. But we don't live together successfully because we have a shared theory of value or a shared story as to how to bring our values to bear in each particular case. So, what makes conversation across cultures worthwhile is not that we're likely to come to reasoned agreement about values. We can't do that at home. We might change our minds, but the reasons we exchange in our conversations will seldom do much to persuade others who don't already share our fundamental evaluative judgments anyway. The same goes for factual judgments, by the way. If you doubt me, I suggest you try persuading someone who believes in them that there are no angels. Or, if you believe in angels, try persuading someone like me who doesn't that they are real. Good luck. The point here is not that there is no moral or factual reality, either there are angels or there aren't, but that we have a very hard time finding it and uh, coming to agreement about it. We rarely offer judgments after all, because we've applied well-thought-out principles to a set of facts and deduced an answer. Our justifications for what we've done or what we plan to do are typically constructed afterwards, rationalizations of what we decided intuitively in the moment of decision. A good deal of what we intuitively take to be right, we take to be right just because we're accustomed to it. Just a couple of generations ago, in most of the industrialized world, most people thought that ideally middle-class women would be housewives and mothers. If they had extra time, they could engage in charitable work or entertain one another. A few might engage in the arts, writing novels, painting, performing in music, but probably not in theater and dance. But society offered little place for them in the learned professions as lawyers or doctors or rabbis or priests. If they were to enter the academy, they would teach young women and probably remain unmarried. They were not likely to make their way in politics, except maybe at the local level. They were not welcome in the sciences. How much of the shift away from all these assumptions is a result of arguments? A Significant part of the shift was just the consequence of our getting used to new ways of doing things. The arguments that kept the old way of doing things in place were not, to put it mildly, very good. And if the reasons for the old sexist way of doing things had been the problem, the women's movement would have lasted a week would have won immediately. The arguments were terrible on the other side. Some people still believe that the ideal for life for a woman is homemaking. And many more believe that it is an honorable option. But the vast majority of Westerners at the turn of this new millennium would be appalled at the idea of trying to force all women back into these roles. Arguments mattered for the women who made the women's movement and the men who responded to them. I don't want to deny that, but the greatest achievement has been to change our habits. During the 1950s, if a college-educated woman wanted to go to law or business school, the natural response was, why? Now the natural response is, why not? We have simply gotten used to a new understanding of gender equality, and that understanding is not one that's based on shared theories or shared discussions or shared values. It's just a new way of doing things. Now, I'm not celebrating this argumentative impasse. I'm delighted with the result, but I'm not celebrating the the, the small role that I think reason played in this. I'm not happy about the poverty of reasoning and much discussion within and across cultures, but it's just a fact that a large part of what we do, we do because it's what we do. We're just used to it. Reasoning, by which I mean the public act of exchanging shared justifications, becomes salient not when when we're going on in the usual way, but when we're thinking about change. And regarding change, what moves people, is not usually an argument from a principle, not a long discussion of values, but just a gradually acquired new way of seeing things as happened with gender. So I'm urging that we should discuss normative questions along with anything else that makes good for for good conversation with people who differ from us not because it will bring us to agreement, but because, as I said at the start, it will help us get used to one another. If that's the aim, then all these opportunities for disagreement shouldn't put us off. Understanding one another may be difficult, but it does not require agreement. If agreement isn't the only thing worth having, then the difficulties relativists claim there are for finding agreement may not matter very much. Though, as an empirical matter, my guess is that if we do enter into respectful dialogue with other peoples, we will find agreement much more often than the relativists expect. In the final episode of the first season of the British television series Skins, which is a group of students in the English town, high school students uh, in the English town of Bristol, there's an instructive moment at the birthday party of one of the characters, Anwar, an English teenager of Pakistani ancestry, whose father is a devout Muslim. Though he's straight, his best friend, Maxi, is gay. And he's been waiting, Maxi's been waiting for Anwar to tell his father, which Anwar has been afraid to do, perhaps unsurprisingly. So Maxi is standing outside, refusing to come into the party until Anwar finally tells his dad that he, Maxi, is gay. While they're talking, Anwar's father comes out and invites him in, Maxi. His wife has made a spicy curry that he knows he likes, just for him. And as Anwar's father is talking about this and trying to coax his friend in, Anwar in the background finally says, not too loud, Dad, Maxie's gay. And his father ignores him. So then Maxie himself says, I'm gay, Mr. Corral. I always have been. And there's a long silence. And Anwar and Maxie wait anxiously to hear what Anwar's father is going to say. And then Mr. Corral says this. This is my, that's the quote from the script. It's a stupid, messed up world. I've got my God, he speaks to me every day. Some things I just can't work out, so I leave them be okay, even if I think they're wrong, because I know one day he'll make me understand. I've got that trust, it's called belief. I'm a lucky man, right? Come, Maxie, the food is ready. But that's how people are who are in conversation with one another. They don't have to agree. They have only to accept each other as partners in conversation and in life. And they can do that without a theory or a principle because being together has generated commitments that transcend even serious disagreement. And this kind of cosmopolitan cohabitation is something we actually all know how to do. But we're only going to bother to take this step if we're already in conversation with one another. And as I say, that means sharing our thoughts about the things we agree about and the things we disagree about big things and small things, football, television shows, movies, gossip about other people in the office. If you've heard what I've been saying, you'll know that this is not the advice of a relativist. I'm not saying that you must accept any judgment at all provided it is sincere and grounded in culture. If Mr. Corral had wanted to kill Maxie or have him locked up, or if Maxie had wanted to curse the prophet for being a homophobe, they would each have crossed a boundary that made cohabitation impossible, at least until one of them changed his mind, and it would have ended their long conversation. But Mr. Corral begins in exactly the right place, with an admission that he can't make sense of everything, even everything important, that the world is hard to understand, and that he may not be right about everything. He does not abandon his belief that homosexuality is wrong. He lays it aside as something to work out later. Right now, what matters is celebrating his son's 17th birthday with his son's best friend. This works in practice. It doesn't need a theory. I'm a philosopher, I like theories. But theory isn't the only thing that matters. And sometimes, it doesn't matter at all. Thanks. Um, We have, Uh, I think five minutes for questions, and there are microphones up there And if you do want to ask a question it would be great if you waited for the microphone because this is being recorded and um, I'll be recorded um, Responding to a silence if you don't if you don't if you don't hand on the microphone
0: Uh, Thank you uh, Dr.
1: Appiah Uh, Excellent, and it was really a pleasure. I'm curious what you think of because it seems that there's an increasing uh, number of uh, vocal and well-known scientists who are now arguing that you can derive some moral judgments from science. And that's a whole other domain of argument, of disagreement, and of making progress. I guess equally f- uh, logic and philosophy. So I'm wondering, do you see any applicability across those domains? Um, almost every sort of serious, practical, moral question has uh, elements of fact that are important to it. And if you're thinking about questions of public policy, for example, there are many, many uh, questions of public policy about things like investment in, in infrastructure, for example, where whether it's wise or not depends upon facts which are known to, uh, which are best understood by experts, by in that case, uh, economists. Um, similarly, there are many, uh, many questions about how, uh, uh, w- when the AIDS crisis began, there were many questions about what was a good policy in relation to uh, regulating the movement of people. Should uh, Ed Meese introduce the requirement that everybody wanted to come to the United States should have a, an HIV test? The World Health Organization was against this. So there are many, many important disputes about what we should do where, um, Getting the facts right is a crucial element of uh, coming to a sensible decision. And, 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 and in those contexts, uh, the right people to consult are the relevant experts. I do not believe that where once you've identified the factual components that the scientists are often the best people to advise us on, um, the, the science itself generates answers to questions about what we ought to value. And in this I, I disagree with as, uh, some of the people you're you're uh, referring to, but I think it's really important that the way in which, so here's another thing. Look, um, uh, if we are, you might feel differently about how we ought to treat uh, other animals. If you think of them as our remote cousins on the Darwinian picture, from the way you would think if you thought of them as um, created By God and given to us to exercise dominion over, which is the picture of our relationship to animals that's implied by the account of the creation in Genesis. But you could think that um, you could believe the creation account in Genesis and still think that we ought not to be cruel to to animals, that that having dominion over them doesn't mean that we can do anything we like with them, right? And so um, the fact that uh, somebody who believes the creation story in Genesis. Uh, doesn't believe the Darwinian story doesn't mean that they can't agree with someone who does believe the Darwinian story uh, uh, about uh, what what should be done in terms of animal cruelty. So I'm skeptical of the thought that, as it were, science by itself is going to deliver answers to the questions about what the right values are, or, by the way, philosophy. Uh, (laughs) I'm skeptical of that thought, but uh, um, but I'm not skeptical of the thought that it's really important in many of these debates to have discussion about uh, what, what you know? What the science says? Because I think that's obviously um, correct. Um, where does the concept of culture war come from? Because I feel like that's evoked frequently here in the United States, um, and I would think that it's sort of diametrically opposed to this idea of conversation across culture. Um, I'm not. A sufficiently distinguished German intellectual historian, so i don 't know the, the, the historical answer to your question where it comes from but the the it's a translation of the of the German expression kulturkampf uh, culture struggle culture fight culture battle and uh, and that goes back a long way though i don 't remember i 'm afraid at the moment though I did once know briefly <laughs> uh, what the context was in which that expression was uh, generated i mean um I think the because I think that um, the ways in which, uh, the ways in which um, reason figures in our moral responses is, is sort of complicated, I'm not inclined to think that because you come from a culture which has certain beliefs, you're bound to uh, disagree with people who come from a culture which has other, other beliefs. I think all the time, and this is the experience, I think, of anthropologists, all the time you go to a place where people seem very different, and then on some particular topic you'll find, my God, no, he... Turns out that he loves fishing too, right? Or uh, he, uh, we understand, we, I and the anthropologist and this woman here, we understand together why it's important uh, to look after children. We love our children, right? There are many, many universal r- uh, responses, as it were, and the fact that people have cultural differences, I don't think guarantees that they'll um, disagree with us any more than the fact that we share a culture guarantees that we'll agree. After all, the, the most important moral debates that probably you're engaged in in your life have to are with fellow Americans about things like abortion and gay marriage. They're not with, you're not arguing with the Ayatollahs about those things, right? You're arguing with guys and gals down the street. Thank you all very much. Our time is up. Thank you for
0: listening. That was Kwame Anthony Appiah recorded live at the Aspen Ideas Festival on July 1st, 2014. <laughs> The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and from across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. And while you're there, please take a few moments to rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. You can also follow the festival on Twitter at Aspen Ideas and Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.